Good evening, everyone. Um, the reading this evening is taken from Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 40. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and, leave a wife, and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you, Dawn. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray, come and be our teacher tonight. Through these words you spoke all those years ago, through what I've prepared as we've thought about this, by your spirit, speak to each one of us and give us grace to trust in you more. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Uh, as Andy said, to explain for those of you who are visitors among us or from other churches or just come in for the first time, we are going through the whole of Luke's gospel. We started at Advent over a year ago and did Christmas at Christmas, and we've done about five or six chapters a term. We're missing nothing out, so we get to preach on some passages I haven't preached on before, and we're going to wind up at Easter, at Easter this year. But this term is like a very long Holy Week. We've got the run-up to Easter uh, over several months. Uh, we had Palm Sunday a couple of, as it were, the story of Palm Sunday a couple of weeks ago. Jesus is in the temple teaching. He's thrown out the traders, and the conflict is rising. And over the last couple of weeks, we've had these stories of conflict. Uh, last Sunday morning, we had uh, the authorities coming and asking Jesus about his authority. So chapter 20, verse 1 and 2, just to bring the context to this. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you're doing these things. Who gave you this authority? It's a great question. There was Jesus growing in popularity and the authorities are worried that the whole world's going after him. And Jesus at that point sidesteps the conflict like this. 
Yeah, Jesus replied, I'll ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they're persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Jesus knows how to sidestep a conflict if he needs to. Uh, but the conflict begins to pick up. He then tells the story we looked at last Sunday evening of the tenants in the vineyard, and the teachers of the law knew he'd told it against them. This is where we finished last Sunday evening, Luke 20, verse 19. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because he, they knew he'd spoken this parable against them. But they're afraid of the people. So they start to try and trap him. And this morning we had the story about the poll tax paid to Caesar. So we'll just cover that one quickly because it all builds, that builds up to where we are tonight. Uh, so verses 20 to 22 of Luke 20. Keeping a close watch on Jesus, they, spent, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's a really clever question. If Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, he will lose all the popularity with the people. If he says, no, you shouldn't pay them, they'll have him arrested for treason to Caesar. It's, sort of, it's a clever question. And Jesus deals with it very cleverly and sidesteps it again. He saw through their duplicity and said, show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he'd said there in public and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Now, Eleanor preached a brilliant sermon on that this morning about us bearing the image of God and rendering to God what is God's. Uh, but I'm not going to uh, do Eleanor's sermon again. That's there. You can listen to that online. All of that is setting the context. These questions are building in the temple courts day by day. Uh, Matthew tells us that this one we've got tonight is the same day. Uh, it's a demanding day for Jesus. And the Sadducees come with another question. Verse 27. This is our reading. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with the question. Now, you will know there's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees did believe in the resurrection, and they were much more ordinary religious leaders, very involved in doing lots of practical good. The Sadducees were more aristocratic. They were priestly. They were more the rulers. They were collaborators more with the Romans. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They thought this life was all there was, and they were determined it was going to work for them. And Jesus is very inconvenient. So they're coming to him with a sort of kind of ridiculous scenario to try and make Jesus look silly. Uh, if you've been in the Sunday school when you grew up, you will have learned about the Sadducees. And I have to do this because you know what's coming. I'm just looking around, don't you? There you are. Those of you who are smiling knows what's coming. Those of you who are not smiling, you're about to learn about the Sadducees. Uh, in the Sunday school, we were taught the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. 
There you go. It's terrible, I know, but I've never forgotten it. Anyway, we get that out of the way and it's done. Now, it's a good question they're asking because the Jews had this custom that if someone dies without children, then a brother should marry them so, to perpetuate the family line. Uh, but they are really trying to make Jesus look silly. Let's just have the question again, verse 28. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her in the same way the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Now, they don't believe in the resurrection. They think it's all silly, and they're just wanting to embarrass Jesus. And Jesus gives another brilliant answer. And where we get to at the end is verse 39 and 40. Some of the teachers the law responded well, said teacher, and no one dared ask him any more questions. So next week, Jesus starts asking his questions, and Andrew will be preaching on those next week. And I've got three things from Jesus' answer for us tonight. They're very simple. The first one is, there is a resurrection. And we need to remind each other of that. We meet on the Sunday, it's the Lord's Day, uh, to remember the resurrection. It's not just Easter Day that we celebrate the resurrection. Every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection. And Jesus is very clear about that from verse 34 of our reading. Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection of the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They can no longer die. They're like the angels. They are God's children since they're children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, for to him all are alive. Jesus believes in the resurrection, and he would prove it by rising from the dead himself. But too often we get like the Sadducees, and we live as if there is no resurrection. All our energy goes into this life. The Sadducees, all their energy was into this life because they didn't believe there was a resurrection. So everything for them is about this life. But for us, particularly in the West, and it's been more comfortable to be a Christian in the West than it probably has for Christians at any age in the last 2,000 years, we can forget that there's a resurrection. We can believe in it theoretically, but we can miss it. And we need to be reminded that there is a resurrection and that we're to live in the light of that above everything. Now, this last week, I've been very forcibly uh, reminded of that. Uh, my brother-in-law, Juliet's brother, Nicholas, died just before Christmas. He was 61. Um, he'd been ill for 10 years. And um, when he caught COVID, it, the body was it just had, had enough. And we were praying for a wonderful restoration or that the Lord would take him. He was a fine Christian man. And it became clear that the Lord was taking him. And he died just before Christmas. So on Thursday, we all drove up as a family up to Scotland. He lived in Perth. On Friday, we had the services, a small family one at the crematorium in the morning and a bigger gathering in the afternoon. I was preaching then. And then we all drove back yesterday. So I'm a little bit sort of jet-lagged, not jet but we weren't jetting down, but uh, car-lagged, if you like. 
But we've been living through death and resurrection as a family over the Christmas season and specifically this week. And Nicholas's funeral was a wonderful celebration of the resurrection. He was a fine Christian man who'd faced many challenges, not just physical challenges, but all sorts of other ones. Uh, I would think more than his fair share of them. But the way he'd responded to them uh, with a real courage and humility had produced a gentleness in him. And as I was preparing my sermon notes and as I was listening and reading what people had written, I wrote down the words humility and gentleness. And then I realized those were words that Jesus used of himself. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus said, I'm humble and gentle, and you'll find rest for your souls. And it was almost as I was preaching, I realized that Nicholas had become really quite like Jesus in the way he treated others. And it reminded me that that is supremely our job in life. We are to present ourselves to God more and more like Jesus, heading for the resurrection. You can build up as many toys as you like in this life, but you've got to leave them all behind. The one thing we take with us when we die is who we are. And while humanly, Nicholas's death at 61 was far too early and it was sad and we're mourning and we miss him, actually, God had taken him, he was ready. And I found my perspective restored by that. And there was a wonderful joy in the sense that this was God's time for him. It wasn't our, the choice of our time, but it was God's time. And he had had to live in the light of that. For the, His illness for the last 10 years meant we really didn't know how long he'd be with us. So this first point, uh, and this was only meant to be a brief first point, is that there is a resurrection and we need to live in the light of it, but not get so bogged down in the things of this world that we forget and when a Christian dies, yes, it's sad that we miss them, but there should be a tremendous joy that they are there, and it's both. Now, there are some branches of the church that won't let you be sad. Now, you have to rejoice in the resurrection, and that's true. But I think our danger is far more, our automatic thing is sadness, and it's both. There's a resurrection, and Nicholas is far more alive than he ever was. So that's the first point, and that was just the brief one. Uh, the second point is that there is no marriage in the resurrection. Uh, Jesus is very clear about this. Now, funnily enough, one of, my, um, one of my sons was chatting to a friend who's not a Christian recently, uh, and he said, my friend asked this question. He said, uh, what happens if someone is married and then one person dies, they marry someone else? What happens then uh, in heaven? Whose wife, are, whose wife or husband are they? I said, oh, well, that's an easy question to answer because Jesus answered that one himself, and he answered it here. There is no marriage in the next life. Again, let's read verse 34 to 36. Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They can no longer die, for they are like the angels. So why not? If marriage is such a good thing, and it is a wonderfully good thing, uh, part of God's creation to make a man and a woman for marriage to be the basis of family. It's clearly a wonderful thing. Why isn't there marriage in heaven? Uh, and we'll have a think about that. But of course, 
for some people whose marriages have been terrible, if marriage went on, that wouldn't be heaven, that would be hell. There would be that marriage, when you marry, you make promises for this life, until death us do part. Now, marriage is a wonderful thing. The Bible begins with a marriage. Uh, Adam and Eve are there, married. And the Bible ends with a marriage. It's Christ and the church are married. The, uh, Christ is the bridegroom. We, the church, are part of his bride. And this great wedding feast is how uh, the Bible finishes. And marriage is meant to be a picture of Christ and his church. It matters partly because it's God's creation and partly because it points us to the ultimate reality that is Jesus and his people for all eternity. That's why throughout the scriptures uh, there is a horror when marriage is treated, treated lightly or badly. In the New Testament, almost every epistle has a avoid porneia, that's the word for sexual activity outside of marriage. But marriage itself is not the ultimate thing. Marriage is for this life. The ultimate thing is being united with Jesus in the new heavens and earth that God is making in the resurrection. Uh, we'll look at a bit of St. Paul talking about this. St. Paul would say that marriage is good, but singleness can be better. Uh, when I had a friend of mine, Vaughan Roberts from St. Ebbs in Oxford, come and preach, he's a single man. That was his sermon and his testimony. For those of us who are married, marriage can be a wonderful thing, and we are to invest in our marriages as the most important human relationship. Some, of course, are not called to be married. Some are called to be single. I love the fact in this church that Eleanor's joined us as our associate vicar, and Eleanor has this brilliant, securely single course. Marriage is difficult. Singleness is difficult. They're sort of opposite difficulties to each other. But for all of us, we can have the reality that is relationship with Jesus that marriage points to. And if you're wondering where I get this from, the best place is Ephesians 5. So let me read to you from Ephesians 5, chapter 21 to 33. Uh, Paul's talking to husbands and wives. He says, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband's the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he's the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, remember they've been told to submit to each other, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. And then Paul quotes the Genesis reading, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So while Paul's talking about marriage, then he's talking about Christ and the church, you think, Paul, what are you really talking about? And in verse 32, he says very clearly, I'm really talking about Christ and the church. That is the ultimate reality. That is what we're made for. And when I'm preaching more about marriage in this, I tend to say Paul gives 
seven lines to the wives and then about 20 lines to the husbands who usually need to be told a bit more and have to submit to their wives and the wives to their husbands. Um, we need it, but it's submit to each other. But it's a picture of Christ and the church. And right at the end of the Bible, you have the picture of this fantastic marriage that we can all be part of. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now, we all grew up with sort of Disney stories. Uh, and uh, the prince or princess marry each other and lived happily ever after. And you know that's nonsense, because marriage is, is, uh, is hard, and it's not perfect, it's difficult. But when Jesus returns, and we are part of this wonderful wedding of Christ and his bride, the church, there really will be no more suffering or death or illness or sadness. And this is why marriage is so important because it points us to Jesus and the church. It's a picture of the gospel. And it's why in the church we are not free to mess with marriage, either by changing whether it's a man and a woman, to two men or two women, or by making it three as, as different parts of the world are trying to bring in polyamory. Um, we're not free to mess with that as we submit to the scriptures. It's not just a minor thing we can disagree about. Uh, let me just do an advert. I could have done this earlier during the notices, but we'll do it now because it fits with the sermon. Uh, we've invited Ian Poole to come on Thursday the 8th. Ian's a friend of mine who's a theologian to speak about why is sexuality so important. These issues of marriage and singleness, we're all human beings, but we're all sexual beings. Why does it matter so much? Why can't we just agree to disagree about these things? Uh, so I'd love to invite you to come. That's Thursday evening, uh, the 8th of February. If you know you're coming, do sign up so we know, know how many are coming. Uh, but whether you're married or whether you're single, thank you, we could end the, end the advert there. This points us to Jesus. And I want to do uh, another advert for a book by a guy called Ed Shaw. Ed is a single man, same-sex attracted gay man who really wrestled with, well, what's the point of me being a sexual being if I've got to lead a single celibate life? And he's written this brilliant book. It's quite short, Purposeful Sexuality. And he said he always used to be frustrated when he went to weddings, knowing that he wouldn't have a wedding. But now he sees that marriage is a trailer for the real thing. So if you go to the cinema, you get the trailers for future films to make you want to see them. Now he sees that marriage is a trailer for Christ and the church. When he goes to weddings, he looks forward to that day when he will be part of the great wedding of Christ and the church. It's a brilliant short book written by a single celibate gay man about what's, the, what's sexuality pointing us to. Um, I could go on on that point as well, but I won't. So the first point is there is a resurrection. The second point is there's no marriage in heaven. 
I, I hope we'll still be friends. I hope that Juliet and I will still know each other and see each other from time to time. But Juliet will be free then. And uh, that's probably good news for her. And um, I might even be the finished article by the time the Lord's finished with me. Who knows? We've got a long way, a long way to go. Third point from this. Jesus knows how to deal with leaders of his people who are unhelpful. Throughout the history of the Christian church, there have been leaders of God's people that have got it wrong. Uh, all of us get things wrong from time to time, and the Lord knows how to deal with this. But here you've got the Sadducees, who are leaders of God's people, and they are badly wrong, and Jesus knows how to deal with them. And it's clearer in Matthew's version. So let's just go to Matthew's version of the same story. Matthew 22 from verse 23. It says, that same day, this is just after the Caesar thing. You'd think when that calmed down, Jesus has gone, well, thank you, Father, that was tough. And then immediately another one comes straight at him. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said. And it's the same question. Let's move on to the next slide. <coughs> The first one married fine. Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels and so on. He's very strong with these leaders. You are wrong because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Verse 29 of Matthew 22. I am genuinely horrified by the very poor level of engagement with the scriptures of some of the people in the Church of England who are arguing for a change of doctrine. It is based far more on what's going on in the world around us than on the scriptures. And I think Jesus would say, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. It can be so frustrating on General Synod hearing people handling them so badly and I have these words of Jesus in my head you're in error because you do not know the scriptures but I take huge encouragement by the fact that Jesus knows how to correct leaders who get things wrong Jesus knows how to deal with our own church of England we're praying that the Lord will guide us we pray Bishop Sadhu's part of the house of bishops for you for the Lord for you in there and for how the Lord guides us uh, God hasn't given up on us yet, so we're not giving up on each other yet either. And Jesus knows how to deal with the leaders. There have been worse difficulties in the history of church than the current one in the Church of England, and we can trust Jesus to lead us through. Though it, the way of Jesus is the cross and the resurrection, so it may get a bit worse before it gets better. But he will lead us through. We are to know the scriptures and the power of God. So just as we head towards finishing, a couple of reminders about what the scriptures do for us. Psalm 1 says this. Blessed is the person who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. When we meditate on God's word day after day, it so shapes us that deep down we draw strength from God, whatever happens. It nourishes us, it shapes us, and we need to be shaped by it. 
the scriptures have a tremendous power as well. Uh, I've picked this, this verse out to illustrate it, Hebrews 4.12, and I'll tell you why in a minute. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. God's word is powerful. I've picked this because on Thursday evening, coming up, at a very different service at quarter past five in Coventry Cathedral, I'm being made an honorary canon. I said to Sadhu, the last time I interviewed a bishop up here was Bishop Christopher, and he told the church he was making me an honorary canon. I think it was the only way he thought he'd get me to Choral Evensong, but I, I don't know quite, quite what it is. Anyway, it's Choral Evensong, which the Lord is just as capable of inhabiting as the way we do worship. But this is the reading that Andy's going to read on Thursday evening at Coventry Cathedral uh, when I'm installed as a pillar of the establishment. Uh, and, and then all the things that Jesus says against them that I have to be more careful about. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. I love the fact that Andy will be reading that on Thursday. If any of you are bored on Thursday and don't know what to do, you are very welcome to come. We don't do enough choral even song here. That's probably not likely to change very quickly. Uh, but Thursday evening at 5.15, um, the scriptures, they shape us, they're powerful. And how much we need the power of God. Jesus says they're in error because they do not know the scriptures or the power of God. The power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit, lives in you and me when we bowed our knee to Jesus as Lord. Our vision as a mission hub, <coughs> this church, is to give everybody in this area a meaningful opportunity to respond to the good news of Jesus over the next nine or ten years. How on earth is that going to happen? Only by the power of God. Only as, one by one by one, bows the knee to Jesus Lord and is filled with the Spirit, and God uses them. And there are stories of God drawing all sorts of people to himself from all sorts of walks of life, the one that Sadhu told earlier about those refugees. Similar stories in this community being told here. It's the power of God that will do it. So in a trailer for Ascension and Pentecost, and we've got Sadhu coming to preach on the Sunday after Ascension when it's our 150th anniversary as a church. Uh, this will probably be the reading, Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That God pours his Spirit on us and gives us power to witness to Jesus. Uh, I've said quite enough. Let's stand and I'll lead in prayer. And if Eleanor and the band would come back ready to lead us in song. Lord Jesus, we bow before you tonight. We praise you that you know the truth and you know that there is a resurrection, that you died for our sins and you rose again, that you are ascended and sitting at the right hand of the Father pouring out your spirit. We praise you that one day you will come again and make everything new, the heavens and the earth. And then we will be part of that ultimate reality, the marriage of you with your people. And whether we're single or married, whether it's going well or we're struggling, we thank you that all of us can be part of that relationship with you that you offer to us. So we pray for grace for each other 
in whatever life situation you've called us into. Grace to become more like Jesus, gentle and humble, ready to present ourselves to you in the resurrection. And we ask if there's anything else you want to whisper to us or impose on our thinking before we go from here, that you would just speak in the stillness. Let's just take a minute to be still. And we pray, Holy Spirit, minister to us what you want us to hear.